0: The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. Movies that go back, we may not remember them, but some of us enjoy watching them anyway back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm thinking specifically of those old Dracula movies where you've got Dr- Count Dracula is creeping up on the victim and in his melodramatic fashion of the old movies. And the victim standing there all of a sudden turns around and pulls out the sign of addition in mathematics. And Dracula is terrified of mathematics. And so he cowers away and he slinks back because the plus sign somehow having two um, toothpicks glued together is terrifying to the most deviant creature that the world has ever seen. Uh, totally foolish. And, and we get entertained. In, in fact, when those movies came out, they were, I guess, scary. Now they're more. I, they're comic now to me i don't find them scary at all i find them more comic to watch but they were meant to be scary uh, but they reflect something that is actually true in christianity christianity has that same superstition uh, many christians believe that there is some type of uh, super supernatural we'll call it mysticism associated with um, the cross this sign some wear it around their neck, and there's nothing wrong with wearing a piece of jewelry, it's attractive, and people use it to identify themselves as uh, associated or with Christianity or being a Christian. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the error comes in when people start describing some sort of a mystical superstition to it, that this provides some sort of supernatural enablement to understand God's ways being somehow set in a course that's going to automatically place you within God's will. I, I don't know all the, the different reasons that people might have for, for using that or for ascribing to that. But this is not something new. This goes back way back in history. I've, I've used this illustration before, but it's really perfect. And so I, I'm, I'm using it again. Maybe some of you haven't seen this. But this is National Geographic from the January of 2000. And there's an article in here on uh, the monasteries of Tibet, uh, Buddhism in Tibet. And there's two-page center spread picture. You probably can't see it really well from where you're at, but it's some heavy tables made out of big hand-hewn timbers. And on these tables are boxes that contain Buddhist uh, religious texts, um, hundreds of them. Some of them go back. Uh, centuries, ancient texts. And underneath this table, these Buddhist monks are crawling on their hands and knees. Underneath this table, it contains all these religious texts. And the caption says, Hoping to absorb the wisdom of Buddhist scriptures without reading them, pilgrims traditionally crawl beneath stacks of sacred texts at the Pelkor, uh Code Monastery in Ganja. Osmosis. Yeah, osmosis. That's exactly what... The, That's exactly what Christians believe today. They don't go through the effort of putting their Bible on a table and crawling underneath it. Um, They put it on their shelf and hope that by walking past it, they'll absorb it. It's exactly the same thing. Or by carrying it to church and leaving it, closed in their lap while they sing their songs but don't study the scriptures that they'll absorb it somehow. That somehow mystically they will incorporate the things that God wants them to know into their life and that somehow magically, mystically they'll be set on a course where automatically everything works out for good, right? If we ignore the last half of the passage, everything works out for good. And uh, we don't Seem to understand in the large, the majority of Christianity that that is just plain, it's moronic, it's superstition, and it's, it's of the flesh. It, one of the works of the flesh is, is religious superstition, and that's exactly what that is. And that's uh, incorporated into really all religious systems and held by many, not all within Christianity, but many within Christianity hold to certain aspects of, of that and put various weights on different aspects of superstition and they they demonstrate that superstition in different ways but it's still a work of the flesh and it's still superstition. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 God gives Timothy some instruction. And I'm saying God, we're in the habit of saying well Paul wrote to Timothy and Paul wrote to Titus and Paul wrote to the Corinthians and Paul wrote to the Galatians and yes he did, but what he wrote was a message directly from God and so it is accurate and maybe sometimes more helpful for us to understand that God gave Timothy instruction concerning how to honor him this is from God's own mind to Timothy and in 1st Timothy chapter 3 <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1 it says the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, talking about the the office of a a pastor teacher, the office, he desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be, and we have this long list of things that the overseer must be, and there's an interesting, uh, to me interesting, grammatical use here. Normally when you have something in the New Testament that is a requirement, something that God determines is essential or is a requirement for the Christian life, he uses what's called a verbal imperative. There's an ending that's placed on the, the end of the Greek verb that describes it as, as something that's actually an imperative. We would might call it a command. Do this. Take out the trash. Feed the dog. Wash the cat. I don't know if that's something that's possible to do or not. <laughs> Whatever it is, we, we, we give out these we call them commands. Greek calls them imperatives. They're something that's absolutely necessary. God doesn't use an imperative here. He uses a present active indicative, which means this is to be a continuous action in the present time. But he starts verse 2 off with a little word that is a word that we would translate, it is necessary. So rather than using a form of a verb that describes an imperative, he uses an actual word that is a word that we would translate, it's necessary. And so uh, different translators translate this different ways. You could say, uh, a bishop must be, some translators say. Uh, Mine says, therefore an overseer must be, but some say, it is necessary therefore. So there's different ways to translate this, but it conveys the idea of essentiality. It is essential that a pastor teacher manifest these qualities. And this is, again, emphasizing God's instruction to Timothy through the apostle Paul. But it's through, Paul is, has uh, qualified to, to write this because Paul measures up to these qualifications. And God is telling Timothy, Timothy, if you desire to be someone who is demonstrating or has the capacity to honor me, If you want to demonstrate uh, true devotion to me, it is necessary that you measure up to these qualities. And to take it one step further, the reason is because, Timothy, I am training you to train others how they can demonstrate devotion that I find acceptable. And I'm using the first person as if God is is instructing Timothy. God is telling Timothy, I am telling you how to honor me. I am instructing you how to demonstrate devotion to me. I am training you to train others how to demonstrate devotion to me that I accept, that I approve of, that I find well-pleasing. And these are all words that he uses within 1 Timothy to describe the reason why he writes this book. And I think that it probably doesn't take any of us by surprise when we understand that, well, all of us have different fields of endeavor that we've gone into. We call it our, our work. Some of us call it our careers or whatever. When I got my nursing license, uh, one of the ladies in the church that I went to back at that time uh, was all gushing and said, well, now that you've got your career, uh, where are you going to move to to, to, uh, to pursue that career? I, I was a little surprised well, i'm not moving anywhere my i don't have a career that's my job I, I went to school so i could get a better paying job not because i had a desire for a career my my career is to serve in the local assembly that's my career uh, i got a job that that allows me to do that and hopefully in a couple of years i can quit that job some people call it retire um, I hesitate to use that term because that insinuates not working anymore, and I don't plan on stopping working. I just don't want to work at that job anymore because I've been tired of it for the last 20, I've been doing it for 30 years, and I've been tired of it for the last, 30, for the last 20 at least. <laughs> but, you know, that's up to God to decide whether I can quit that particular job or not. But I still plan on working. I'm not gonna just sit around drinking beer and watching TV. First of all, I, I can't stand beer, and I wouldn't drink it even if I was forced to. Probably I'd vomit it up, but the point is, I, I plan on being active with my life in, in some capacity and I don't plan the major emphasis of my life changing at all if I stop my nursing job because the major emphasis in my life is to serve in the local assembly. Whether it's in this assembly or another assembly, that's for, for God to decide where. but the course of my life isn't changing my career has not changed one bit if I start nursing if I stop it and we all have different jobs and those different jobs require training some of them require going to college to learn some of them require going to a trade school to learn some of them require uh, sitting under somebody who is proficient in that in that and and get private instruction but maybe a welder could can learn from another welder or a, a, a a uh, construction worker can learn how to can build a house by, by working with somebody that knows how to do it and never s- set foot in a classroom. Or, there, there's, but all of these, to become proficient at anything, it requires training. We all understand that. And in, Christian, in the Christian life, we tend to place an undue emphasis on training within the world system and place a huge premium on going to college, you've got to go to college. Why do you have to go to college? Well, some reason, some because that's the only way you can get certain jobs. It used to be you could become a nurse without going to college. That was before I was born, okay, a long time before I was born. Uh, that was a requirement to go into that field. I had no choice. It wasn't because I wanted to uh, change the world or make it a better place or make a difference. It was because I had to do that to become a nurse. I mean, when I was 12 years old, I made a commitment to God. You'll find this. I've probably told you this before. This is a mark of being, of being old. You tell the same stories over and over again and don't remember that you've told them over and over again. So <laughs> you've probably heard this before. But when I was 12, I committed myself to God. And I remember, to this day, praying to God, finally realizing that I needed to give my life completely over to Him, no strings attached, and I did that. In, in my mind, in 12 years old, I did this. And I said Lord you can have me completely the only things I won't do would go to be go to college join the army or become a preacher (laughs) I Joined the army to get money to go to college and here I am standing in front of you teaching Uh, That was the mind of a 12 year old but the point is we understand I think that serving God requires a degree of commitment but there's in many people's minds a an imbalance in the training that we we think we need in the world system to be a success in the world system and the training we don't think we need to become successful in living the Christian life and God has given Timothy two books two entire letters to train him how to train himself and by extension therefore how to train others how to live the Christian life in a manner that is well pleasing to God that demonstrates devotion on God's level that God describes as well pleasing to him and Christians though seem to have this idea that uh, training is not necessary to do that. Apparently, God wasted his breath to Timothy because uh, Paul, God devoted two entire letters to Timothy to train him for that very purpose. Um, and Christians use texts to actually um, what's the word I want? justify is the word I'm looking for to justify their opinion. We're going to look at a couple of those texts this morning. As to, they're, they're very. I'm using these because these are extremely popular texts that Christians go to to actually justify their not needing training. And we go to Isaiah chapter 55. Now, this is not training for the Christian life, but this is training uh, nonetheless. Uh, that uh, what would be well pleasing to God in their in their particular uh, dispensation, their their set of circumstances they lived in under law and to the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 55, we have a very, very commonly quoted verse. And it's a verse that's used to justify this type of Christianity, this type of mysticism that um, negates the necessity for personal training. And in Isaiah chapter 55, verse, well, let's see, verse 8 tells us my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts this is a passage that i think most christians are are fairly familiar with we understand that god's bigger and smarter than we are and his ways are uh, as the psalmist says past finding out and that was true for the Old Testament saint, but it's not true for the New Testament saint. God's ways are not past finding out for us because God has revealed them to our to us through His Spirit. We have that in First Corinthians chapter 2. God, The deep things of God, He says, who can know the mind of the Lord? We can go to 1 Corinthians 2. You can do, go in your own time. I think you're familiar with that passage. Who has known the mind of the Lord that we should instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. Why? So that He can instruct us. Because we can know the deep things of God because the Holy Spirit compares spiritual things to spiritual minds. We can understand the deep things of God because we have the Holy Spirit to teach us. That's the very reason 1 Corinthians 2 is written, so that we can understand that the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're moronic to him, but the spiritual mind can receive them the Old Testament saint did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They didn't have that capacity. So, for the Old Testament saint, this was true. God's thoughts were not possible for the Old Testament saint to understand, A point apart from direct communication, and even with direct communication, they still couldn't always grasp the significance of what God was telling them. Daniel himself was given direct revelation from God, and Daniel said, I don't understand what you're telling to me. Explain this to me. God said, it's not for you to know. It's it's for later. Now, we can know those things. why? Because we have the Holy Spirit comparing spiritual things with spirit, spiritual thoughts with spiritual things so we can know them. Daniel couldn't. <clears throat> so very first off the bat we can see that this passage, while it is true of the Old Testament saint and is generally true of all, of all people, is not necessarily cr- true of the Christian, but it is it is still a true statement. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. They do they do not equate. And verse 10 says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and make it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth, that shall not return to me void, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. This verse 10, uh, 11 is an extremely popular verse. I hear it quoted by people over and over and over again and quoted completely out of context. It's quoted by individuals that that proclaim that mystical idea that the sole solution, the sole goal, the sole impetus for the Christian life is found in the two concepts, read your Bible and pray. It's, it's uh, popularized in the song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Well, that is not a true statement. You can read your Bible till you're blue in the face, and you're not gonna grow, grow, grow. Because, well, I don't, you probably remember, it was very recently, Tim gave a series on how to read your Bible. Now, when Tim started his series on how to read the Bible, did he take us back to a uh, kindergarten or first grade primer that this is the letter A. Now, everybody say A stands for A or A. And then B is B and C is K. Did he teach us the letters of the alphabet so we could understand how we could read our Bible? No, I think we understand. That's silly, because he wasn't teaching us how to read he was giving instruction how to read the Bible, because the Bible is a unique book. And reading the Bible, for some reason, and the the reason is given to us in Scripture, scripture, the reason we have to be instructed, it takes training how to read the Bible, because the Bible is not written like other books. There is spiritual truth in the Bible that requires the teaching of the Holy Spirit to understand. There is... uh, well, we, I have in my library what we call systematic theologies, their Bible, they're, it's a book that has a chapter on the study of Christ and a study on the, the Holy Spirit and study on salvation. So they have these doctrinal uh, subjects that are compartmentalized and goes through. <clears throat> Old Testament and New Testament takes all the verses, or many of the verses, that deal with this particular subject and harmonizes them into a cohesive study into this chapter. And the Bible's not written that way. I don't go to chapter 1, and, well, this is the this is the doctrine of soteriology. Genesis gives me soteriology, and Exodus gives me uh, hemardiology, doctrine of sin, and, and chapter 3, uh, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. The Bible's not written like a systematic theology. I have to do, and Scripture tells us, if we, understand, if we understand Scripture, Scripture teaches us that we have to compare Scripture with Scripture in order to harmonize it. And Scripture tells us that we have to recognize that all Scripture is profitable, but it's not all profitable for the same thing. Some of it's profitable for this, some for this, some for this, and some for this. And that's actually found in Timothy. <laughs> God writes Timothy. Because Timothy had to be trained to recognize that all Scripture is not Profitable for the same things and so we have to learn which crop which scripture is profitable for which things and So just reading the Bible and praying every day and will grow 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 is kind of foolish because what I read May have absolutely no bearing on Growth in the Christian life at all. I guarantee you if you read the begets in Genesis every single day of your life without exception From beginning to end, this guy beget this guy, and he lived so many years, and he died. And this guy beget this guy, and and, and he lived so many years, and he died. And you read that every single day, and you pray about that, and you meditate upon that every single day, you will die just as immature as you were the moment you were first saved because that has no bearing on living the Christian life. You have to understand that some scripture is profitable for some things, but that scripture is not profitable for learning the Christian life. And if, if you remember, I've got on the back table there, the, the primary uh, scripture, uh, words or phrases that we're looking at in First Timothy and studying, and these are the word profane, We've mentioned that this idea of honoring God, which is found eight times, profane is found three times. Honoring God is found eight times. Training, there's three specific words that are used for training in chapter four. We have uh, the phrase well pleasing to God that's used two times, and it's only used in Timothy in First Timothy. This particular word, we have faith occurs 16 times, and it occurs two different ways in First Timothy. It occurs with the definite article, the faith, that refers to specific faith relating to uh, promises pertaining to the Christian life. And you have faith that deals with general faith as to the fruit of the Spirit. And both are used in First in Timothy. Uh, it's used 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 times in relationship to the faith, and 13 times in faith in general. Which, which scriptures relate to which? Well, that's profitable to know if you want to know which training refers to which subject. And then we have the word truth that occurs five times in First Timothy. Three of those five times, you have the definite article preceding it, which refers to specific truth pertaining to things that only God can do in relationship to the Christian life versus truth in general, which is used two times. And so we have these uh, one, two, three, four, five, six uh, general Terms that are that are uh, demonstrated by about nine or ten different different forms of these words that give training specific training on how to honor God with with our Christian lives and understanding how these words relate with each other is going to affect our understanding of the Christian life. Now, in in Isaiah here, this idea of my word shall not uh, return to me void or empty it's often used uh, if, if you go on in the con, people think they're taking it in context of Isaiah by going on in the context here if you go down to verse oh let's say um Well, let's read verse 11 again and just go on in the context past here. It says, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. In other words, you're going to have a, 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 a rose garden full of thornless rose bushes. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will be cut off which will not be cut off. So people love this passage because <clears throat> they have this idea that it teaches my word goes forth in other words all i have to do is quote scripture Uh, i rebuke satan in the name of whatever and and it's not going to return to me void i'm going to end up with peace and happiness and prosperity will be at my fingertips if i just quote scripture in every in every given circumstance it doesn't matter whether it applies to the circumstance or not it doesn't matter even really if it's actually scripture it can just sound like it's kind of biblical i rebuke you satan that sounds kind of biblical doesn't it? it's not but it sounds like it so i can even use religious sounding terminology and if i really feel really like i mean it why it's going to result in prosperity and peace and everything's going to work out hunky-dory and it's going to i'm going to grow 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 as a christian as i become more proficient at taking scripture out of context and throwing it however i want to i'm going to become more adept at it and so i'm going to interpret that as growth i'm not going to recognize it as a deception for what it is and the pit that i fall into and it's not going to solve the problems of my life and it's not going to be honoring to god it's not going to be honoring to god in any way shape or form because god tells Timothy that to be well-pleasing, to be demonstrating the faith, to be living according to the truth, it takes training. And I have to recognize that some things, if there are things that are well-pleasing to God, there are things that are not well-pleasing to God. And he says what those things are. And in Isaiah chapter 55 here, there is a greater context that we have to look at. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Allegorizing what following Jesus is, and 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 kind of fabricating this I this mythical idea of what following Jesus is, and kind of building up a um, a cartoon, really, a, a fantasy, a fantasy of what following Jesus is. It has no basis in reality. Yes. So I'm confused because what I've been, what I've always learned is that when you're going through something, you quote scripture and you being attacked, that that's what you do, pull out of scripture, you memorize scriptures. So I'm confused. Because, okay, uh, okay, what you're trying to sure. And, and the point that I'm making is, it matters what scripture you're focusing on, because not all scripture is going to solve a particular problem. So you have to understand, make a dis- distinction between what scripture applies to this set of circumstances and which one doesn't. And if we don't if we're not trained to recognize which scripture is effective and God desires me to use in this situation, it's because it's through scripture God's going to give us some some of this empowerment. But if I'm using scripture incorrectly, I'm not going to get that empowerment, and I'm just left to my own devices and I will fail. And how do I learn how to do that? Through training, through understanding the word. And that's why we have pastors who God tells Timothy, you have to meet certain criteria to be qualified to train people to use Scripture properly. And if you don't meet these qualifications, you shouldn't be a pastor teacher. You shouldn't be pastoring because you're not qualified, because you yourself don't know what Scripture applies to which set of circumstances. And the point that I'm making is Christianity has a lot of people teaching the Word of God that aren't qualified to do so. And so therefore, they're not honoring God, and they're not teaching you how to honor God. So we have to recognize all Scripture is profitable, but it's not all profitable for the same thing. So just throwing out Bible verses when I'm under satanic attack isn't going to make Satan flee. I have to do Scripture that God tells me will make Satan flee. And that's found in, in uh, Ephesians where it says, uh, be strong in the Lord. First of all, I have to do what Josh has been teaching about understanding my position in Christ, being strong in the Lord. He's been doing that in the afternoon service. Learning what my position in Christ is, and and mentally placing myself there, and after I place myself in that mentally in that position, recognizing that that's the place where God sees me, and that's where my life is hidden, is together with Christ in in God. That's where my life is, and that's where I should be mentally thinking. And then God gives me the power to to, to uh, put on the rest of the armor of God, and it's the armor of God that will make Satan flee, having my breast go around with the, with the breast with the the loins grew about with truth and the breastplate of righteousness and all these things that are involved with with putting on their armor of God. I use that for satanic attack. I don't use that for when I'm dealing with my sin nature. That's a whole different thing. With my sin nature, I have to go to Romans chapter 6 and deal with reckoning myself dead to sin, considering the fact that I am died together with Christ. God sees me as sharing in Christ's death. He sees me as sharing in Christ's resurrection, so He sees me at His own right hand. So I consider myself dead to the sin nature, and I'm alive, resurrected with Christ at the Father's right hand. And that gives mentally thinking about my position in christ and placing myself there gives me the capacity the power to have strength over to have victory over the temptations of my sin nature that's different than the armor of god so i'm just just pointing there's scriptures that's specific for certain things in the christian life that allow me to be victorious in the christian life and that's what honors god using scripture the way he wants me to use it in the circumstances that are appropriate for the right circumstances and the emphasis here is that takes training the very fact that you asked the question proves the point. I asked the same, same question too. Each one of us here has asked that exact same question. Each one of us has battled with that, that question. Some of, I battled that question for years after I was given training. It took me years before I figured out how to put that into practice. It was actually easy to do, it just it was too easy, because I couldn't accept the fact that it was just, this is something that God does for me. I just have to, to do what He tells me, I just have to reckon myself dead to sin. I don't have to understand how it works, I don't have to understand the mechanics, I just have to believe, have faith. This is a promise from God. If I do what He tells me to do, He puts to death the lusts of the sin nature. It, ha- it worked, and that took training. I battled with it. I still battle with it. I still sometimes fail to do that, and I fall on my face and get a bloody nose, metaphorically speaking. Well, sometimes literally speaking, because I can't. But, uh, <laughs> but we all fumble over that because that training takes habitual, day by day. Use that we have to constantly put into practice to be able to become proficient at it and be ones that aren't stumbling over ourselves and failing in the Christian life, but ones that are standing up, standing in grace, growing in grace, and becoming men, women, that are mature in using the faith that we have and consistently more and more honoring God demonstrating that we are devoted to Him by honoring Him, by using the gracious provisions He's given us to live the Christian life according to His standard. That was a long-winded answer, but did that answer? Okay. (laughs) As they say, it's never too late as long as there's breath in our lungs. It's never too late. It, It may be too late to change what's gone on past, but Paul Paul dealt with his past. Paul was a murderer. Paul murdered Christians. He gave us he if he didn't do it himself, he instructed others to do it. So he says, "I am the least of all. I'm not qualified to be an apostle just because of the things that I've done." But God, but I found mercy. He says, "I'm qualified because God found me. God found me. Uh, he made me qualified. God made me qualified to be put in the ministry." And so that he said, forgetting those things that lie behind. I press towards the mark, and we can't literally forget what goes on be- before, but we can put them out of our mind and see. We can we can cease to to uh, make those the things that motivate us in our actions. If we if we allow our failures to be our motivations, then we'll be motivated to stay in failure. <laughs> God says, press towards the mark. <laughs> Stop worrying about what happened before and do the right thing today. And if you do the right thing today, you can honor God today. <laughs> And that's that's the important thing. Going on to to the in looking back in this uh, previous context here in Isaiah 55, <clears throat> he says in verse one, "Ho, everyone, just a just a hey, you. That, that's a that's a, I guess a Hebrewism of, of just say you know McFly knocking. Hey, hey guys, pay attention to what I'm saying here. <clears throat> everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have you who have no money, come buy and eat." Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How in the world do you buy food without cost? What he's saying is you need to accept the gracious provisions that God has provided. Uh, Christ said, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's the idea that Isaiah has here. It's not talking about literal food. He's talking about the gracious provisions that God has given to us now, here he's talking to, to Israel under law. He's not talking to us in the Christian life. I'm just using this as an example, an Old Testament example, of how uh, people people today, Christians today, use this Old Testament scripture out of context to try to live the Christian life by And God was telling Israel that he had gracious provisions for them. They're different than the provisions he has for us, so we shouldn't be going to Isaiah for learning how to live the Christian life, but people do it all the time. And they take this out of context and god's telling israel that i have gracious provisions for you and he goes on to question verse 2 why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy in other words you're spending your time your energies devoted to things that do not provide satisfaction in your life you spend your energies serving gods that are not god you spend your efforts Uh, satisfying your sin nature and pursuing things that will not give you happiness or satisfaction in your life. God is going to give Israel gracious provisions that will provide for them, but uh, the things that they're pursuing are not going to. In other words, they're just living in a life that is dishonoring to God. They're doing what they want to do, ignoring what God wants, and wondering why their life is falling apart. Listen carefully to me, and what is good, delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear, come to me, listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. <clears throat> the context of Isaiah 55 and the blessings that he are promised at the end of the chapter, the, the peace and the, <clears throat> the, the joy, the, the mountains and the hills break forth into shouts of joy in verse 12, and the the Thorns turned into uh, a a, a garden, a garden, a a garden of Eden, basically for you. These these provisions that are going to be a result of this covenant that is given, covenant promises that they're going to share in the covenant of David. The Davidic covenant is given back in in in. I was have the first Samuel, I think. Oh, excuse me, 2nd Samuel. It's in 2nd. That's New Testament. I'm not going to find 2nd Samuel in the New Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I think. 2nd uh, Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, we have a promise that's made. It's actually called a covenant here. I'm sure Tim's going to get to this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, I'm just going to mention this, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, this is, when you're, this is God speaking to, to David, this is when, you, when your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you've lived your life, and you've, you've died, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This is a promise that God, a covenant, a, a legal contract that God makes with David, and it's what Tim has described as an unconditional covenant. God has not required David to do anything. What God is saying here is, I'm gonna do this. And David's sitting and saying, What do I have to do? You didn't hear me, David. It's I'm going to do this. This is unconditional. God is promising David that he's going to establish his throne forever. His kingdom is going to endure forever. Th- and this kingdom is going to endure through the person of Jesus Christ. So he's referring to a fulfill- a time of fulfillment during the millennial kingdom when these things are going to occur. David's kingdom <coughs> is going to be uh, through well, David himself is going to be resurrected and reign over the earth during the Millennial Kingdom, and Jesus Christ personally will reign over this kingdom, and we will be reigning together with Christ over this kingdom. But this is not talking about the blessings that we're going to receive in this kingdom, because the blessings we receive in this kingdom are going to be reigning together as kingly priests uh, together with Christ over this entire kingdom. The promises that are given to <clears throat> in, uh, through Isaiah the, the hills are going to break forth in joy and the nettles are going to be turned into a rose garden without a, a thornless rose garden you're going to have uh, prosperity and an environment that is comfortable to live in is Referring to this time when David's covenant is fulfilled and individuals who are ascribing to living according to God's requirements in the old Under law are going to be resurrected and they're going to share in the fulfilled covenant that was promised to David They're going to be living during that time of prosperity They may die in this present life and they did die They're in in a show right now. They're in the center. They're They're, they're dead <clears throat> but they're going to be resurrected and they're going to share in these covenant promise was made to david and that's what isaiah 55 is saying you are going to share in that very same covenant that was promised that was uh, uh, that contract that was made with david you're going to be resurrected and you're going to share in that provided uh, you are uh, one who is uh, being obedient to the dictates that god in other words, they had to believe that God was who he said he was, that he was doing what he said he was doing. They had to have faith. They had to be believe in an Old Testament sense and be saved in order to be ones who would be able to, to share in that covenant promise. So Isaiah 55 has no bearing in the Christian life today. It's talking about Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected and live under the covenant promises of David. So this idea of throwing God's word out at any situation Taking a passage of Scripture and just throwing out and it's not going to return to me void It's going to accomplish what I purpose and I think I'll I suspect I don't know But I suspect a lot of Christians take this in Isaiah 55 when it says it will not return to me void This is this is in God's mind God is basically saying this God saying my word God's word will not return to me God void and I think a lot of Christians try to take that personal pronoun and insert them into God's place it's not going to return to me void. I'm going to throw God's word out and it's not going to return to me void. It's going to accomplish all that I want it to. And so we take that work of the flesh that's called selfishness, and insert our place, ourselves into the place of God. And we take God's Word, something out of context and something that God said is reserved for God. God said it'll accomplish what He wants. and I take it out of, and I put myself into God's place and that's satanic attack, by the way, um, and, and place myself in God's Word, and I take God's Word, and I say, it's going to return to me and accomplish what I want it to accomplish. And what do I want it to accomplish? Well, right now, I'm in a bad situation, and I'm afraid. Well, I want to have peace, so I'm going to throw some scripture out, and it's going to, re- and it's going to somehow magically, mystically bring me peace. It's going to make Satan... Flee from me. Going to make Dracula flee. If I just take this magical symbol and and throw it at Satan, he's going to, oh, he's quoting scripture at me, and I'm going to run and flee. Satan doesn't flee just because you you quote scripture. Uh, Satan himself quotes scripture all the time. We have a multitude of illustrations in the New Testament where Satan has quoted scripture. Satan is not afraid of scripture. And it's not scripture that makes him flee. It's God who makes him flee. It's when we use the right scripture in the right way that God gives us the power that Satan will flee from us because the power of God uh, forces him to flee. It's it's not because he's afraid of my toothpicks that are glued together. He doesn't care how many toothpicks I have glued together or what configuration they're in. Satan's not afraid of this. But he does flee when God makes him flee, when God gives us the power to cause it to happen. when We use the right scriptures in the right way. And so... this is just one of many illustrations I used it because it's one of the most common that I hear used by Christians that use scripture in a metaphysical way to uh, out of context to and genuinely think that they are honoring God don't recognize that it takes training this will never result in honoring God it never will and God is telling Timothy it takes training you have to because what something that is true in Isaiah Isaiah 55 is true when he says my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways says the Lord that is just as true today as it was when it was written back to, in, in Isaiah, when God gave it to Isaiah to write that is true <clears throat> God's thoughts are not our thoughts and even though we have the Holy Spirit we don't get we don't have the capacity to know the mind of god just mystically because we have the holy spirit it still takes training we have to understand how to utilize the holy spirit we have to recognize what does the holy spirit do what does he not do why does he do the things he does why does he not do some things what is the difference between the holy spirit's ministry in reproving me which is a fancy word saying spanking well, slapping me around. The Holy Spirit doesn't do the spanking. God the Father does, but uh, uh, brings about a change of mind when he, when he convicts our mind that we're wrong. The Holy Spirit does it. Why does he do that? Because we're wrong. How do we know the difference between being wrong and being right? Well, it takes training. We have to recognize. Uh, one of the, the illustrations that, that Tim uses, has used a number of times, and it's very appropriate, is that something, and it's kind of astounding in a way, but um, he had to teach the Corinthians not to fornicate because it was uncommon in their culture to go to temple prostitutes and be involved in fornication in their religious system. And they had to learn that fornication was displeasing to God. And it's not helpful for your marriage either. Okay? Uh, They had to learn that. But I, I actually looked that up because I was—I thought I'd seen that. It's actually something he had to even tell the Thessalonians. He said, told the Thessalonians to flee fornications. The Thessalonian church was probably the healthiest church in the New Testament, and they had to be trained that fornication was not healthy and that it was actually uh, opposed to the will of God, and it was displeasing to him, and it's not healthy to your marriage either. And so the Thessalonians had to be taught that. The Romans had to be taught that. The Corinthians had to be taught that. That means that's just one of the works of the flesh the the he t- tells us he had to train us what all of the works of the flesh are because even that we are so proficient with the works of the flesh there there's something that we are by nature we do them naturally and the christian life is a supernatural life it's a life using the things of god in a way that overcomes what we are by nature we can live a life that is a supernatural life by God's empowerment, which means we can live a life that opposes what we are by nature. We don't have to be enslaved to the things that our nature wants us to do. We can live above that, but it takes training, which means we have to learn what those things are. We have to learn what the life is that is pleasing to God, and we have to learn how to overcome these things. And the problem with Christianity mostly is they teach us that the Bible is a... Is a rule book that tells us what we're not supposed to do. And if you're committing fornication, if you are stealing, if you're murdering, if you're whatever the things we're not supposed to be doing, that the Bible just tells you just need to try harder and read your Bible and pray every day, and you'll have victory over these things. And what Paul is training Timothy is that it, the Christian life is far, far beyond that. The Christian life does take work. And the christian life is easy it's both because god gives us provisions that makes it easy we have to do things make decisions that are hard decisions and we have to learn what god does and what he wants us to do and we have to learn what empowerment he gives us and how he gives it to us and when he gives it to us and why he gives it to us and do things his way and that takes training and so Paul teaches timothy god teaches timothy how to live a life that's honoring to him and it takes training and you know if you're going to be somebody who's standing before a group of people to to teach them the word of god you have to it's necessary it's essential that you have certain qualifications because if you don't measure up to those qualifications you are you're going to be like uh, you're going to be living life that Paul was afraid of. I think it's chapter 9 where Paul says that his greatest fear was that after teaching others, he himself would be disapproved. In other words, that he would teach others, this is what you're supposed to do, and then being found a hypocrite, not doing those himself, and then being disapproved. Who would be disapproving him? God. He would be living a life that was not honoring God, that God was not well pleased with, God was displeased with, that he would be Disapproved. God would say, I don't approve, Paul. Paul's greatest desire was that he would have God's approval. And it is possible for us to have God's approval, but it takes training. Father, we do thank you again that it's only through your gracious provision that we can meet your approval. Because it's only by using the things that you graciously give us that we can possibly be approved by you. And then you do. And we just thank you that we have this This set before us it is a goal that is attainable and it takes some effort but the greatest the greatest balance of the work has been already uh, taken care of by you so just help us to be ones that ever have the mindset be be faithful to your word as you've promised to be working in us that which is the giving us the desire and giving the energy to do what's well pleasing to you but give us a heart help us to be ones who have a heart that decide to use your gracious provisions as you set them before us so that we can be well-pleasing to you. Amen.